The following presentation on Enlightenment and Revolution is brought to you by the Institute of Catholic Culture. This and other audio and video files are available at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Following a welcome by Father Hathaway, pastor of St. Veronica Catholic Church in Chantilly, Virginia, is an introduction by Sabatino Carnazzo, executive director of the Institute. And now, part two of Enlightenment and Revolution with Professor Mark Wunsch, St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us. Good evening, everyone. How are you? Welcome to St. Veronica Catholic Church. This is our parish, and we're happy to have you here. Our building, someone was asking me when the church was built, it was 2004, and our first Mass was Christmas of 2004. But on Friday, we celebrate the 10th anniversary of the very first Mass offered at St. Veronica Parish. And the Holy See, thank you, Father. Father Frank Avila, Father Charles, they know what that means. But we survived to 10 years. And of course, I, as Father Pollard, we're indebted to for building our building. But the Holy See has granted us a plenary indulgence for those who attend Mass here on the Vigil of the Assumption or on the Assumption, which of course is non-obligatory this year because it falls on a Saturday. But I know everyone here would not wait for their mother to mandate they attend her birthday, right? So be happy to come to honor Our Lady and to praise her on that great feast day. And then we have a little parish picnic afterward. We're also looking for some adorers. We have our Adoration Chapel, which is open 24 hours a day from Monday morning through Saturday. So if you live nearby or you'd like to drive, there's several hours outside the door in which we need a second adorer because we're just a tiny parish of 5,000 people. So, which really, it's not that many for this big, you'd think we're 10,000 people, wouldn't you? But no, we're just a little small parish. But So if you'd like to come and visit our Lord here and you could commit to an hour, then you could just take a card and it tells you who to call on there. But I'm taking away from Sabatino's message here, it's a little commercial. And I just wanted to greet Father Frank Vella, Father Charles, and thank them for being here today with us, and I want to applaud you too for your ongoing formation in the faith, and we know that doesn't end until even after we're dead. I mean, do you think we keep learning in heaven? But so thank you for coming, thank you for, uh, for continuing to learn more about the faith and to be those evangelizers in the culture. Today is the Feast of St. Clair, Virgin. She was born in Assisi in 1193, followed uh, St. Francis, she was the spiritual daughter of St. Francis. Uh, and teaches us about poverty and detachment. You know, beautiful, joyful poverty. And certainly, uh, if poverty were so great, we wouldn't try to alleviate it, right? So it's not just being poor, it's the idea of being detached from earthly things so that we can open our heart to God and to focus on spiritual realities. Uh, so she teaches the joy of detachment and spiritual poverty. She led a life that was austere, but rich in works of charity and piety. She died at the young age of 60 in 1253. So we ask for her intercession tonight, and let us uh, pray uh, the prayer uh, for this feast day. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. God of mercy, you inspired St. Clair with the love of poverty. By the help of her prayers, may we follow Christ in poverty of spirit and come to the joyful vision of your glory in the kingdom of heaven. We ask this to our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Holy Mary, our hope seat of wisdom, Saint Joseph, Saint Veronica, and Saint Clair.
May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, Sebatino. Well, welcome back, everybody. For those who are here for the first time, I'm sorry you missed uh, last week's lecture. As Father was saying, St. Veronica's is, uh, well, maybe not the largest parish in the diocese, but 5,000 people. And it, it always strikes me, we look around as Catholics and we say, wow, we have 200 people or 300 people showing up for adult education. I've never seen anything like this before. And, uh, and you're right, we haven't, but it's no excuse. Because in reality, with a parish of 5,000 people, we should have at least 3,000 people here tonight. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, stand up. Find somebody you don't know and say hello. All right, a, a few quick announcements. I've been told that my announcements are just too long, so I keep trying to trim them. And what do you say? I'm, I'm Sicilian, so I keep going. Uh, but there are, uh, there's a prayer basket in the back, and, um, and we do ask people that have particular prayer intentions to go ahead and put your intention there, put them in the basket. And we have people that are dedicated with the Institute to pray for those in the Institute, the friends of the Institute, and those are related to the friends of the Institute. So, put them there, and look at this. 200 more serious Catholics, serious about praying, and uh, we'll storm the gates of heaven. So put your prayer intentions there. 5,000 people in this church. How many of you invited a friend to come tonight? Keep your hands up. For those who are not raising your hands, I want you to feel it. Now put your hands down. We have an obligation, put your hands down, it's okay. We have an obligation given to us by Jesus Christ to go out into the world and to share the message of the resurrection. And we fail to do that, we'll give an answer for it. Okay, and not only that, where is the joy in life and being a Christian if we're not sharing what we have in our hearts with others? Okay, so I want to encourage you. Bring your friends to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Bring your friends to church on Sunday and bring your friends to... Uh, the whole, to the food festival, to Vespers, and our church tour, okay? So I want to welcome back our wonderful speaker, Mark Winch. Well, on that note, okay, uh, yeah, I'd like to uh, uh, also thank Sabatino for being here. I'd also like to encourage you uh, to attend the, the, the next two uh, editions, installments in this Enlightenment and Revolutions, uh, inter, you know, inter, uh, lecture series, what have you. And those will be offered by my colleague, uh, Professor McGuire. So I've kind of painted in broad strokes, okay, uh, the intellectual underpinning of what occurred in human history, okay. The history of ideas that slowly affected human events, what was actually happening on the ground, if you were. Now, I've painted these broad strokes, and what my colleague is going to do for you is to fill in the details, okay? And he will give some of the historical events and talk about them in some detail, showing their dependence on uh, some of the principles, etc., that I've discussed. But that will, I think, paint a clear picture of the philosophy and the history of this period and why what happened happened the way it did. Okay, so that's generally where we're going, and, and uh, hopefully uh, you'll all attend uh, the other installments. So I'd like to just put in a plug for that, especially uh, for my friend and colleague, uh, Professor McGuire. Uh, I, th I think he's, he's an exceptional young historian. I think you'll really enjoy it. Okay, but now, ha after having made that plug, let's get on with the jokes, shall we? Yeah. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> okay. Okay. 
so so let's 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 get started off on on good terms here. Okay, uh, now so so let's let's try this one on for size. Okay, all right. So this is uh, a joke about dating, always a funny topic, and philosophy, sometimes a funny topic. Okay, but 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 the hybrid usually leads to humor. Okay, uh, philosophy and dating is, is a combustible uh, combination. So here we have it. Okay, a boy is about to go out on his first date, okay, first date, and is nervous about what to talk about, you know, as boys sometimes are, okay. What am I going to say? So he asks his father for advice. Seeking paternal wisdom, his father replies, My son, there are three subjects that always work. Food, family, and philosophy always work. You know. The three F's, as, you, as it were. You know. uh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it, it actually, in Italian, philosophia is, 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 is with an F. Uh, anyway, but not in the Latin, but you get the point. Yeah. Uh, the boy picks up his date, and they go to a soda fountain. Okay? Let's just pretend soda fountains still exist, and they go to a soda fountain. All right. All right. Uh, yeah, we have something like a soda fountain. Yeah. Ice cream sodas uh, are in front of them, and they're staring at each other. I assume they're, they're, they haven't, you know, you know they're, they're looking into each other's eyes and drinking out of straws, doing that whole thing yet. I mean, anyway, anyway that's just my commentary. I apologize. <laughs> anyway, so, so uh, they stare at each other for a long time, and the boy's nervousness builds. And he remembers his father's advice and chooses the first topic. And he asks the girl, do you like potato pancakes? <laughs> she, she says No. And the silence returns. Uh, yeah, maybe Dad isn't quite so wise as I once thought. You know, maybe Dad should have filled him in a little bit more about you know where to go with food, family, and philosophy. But you know, he hasn't discovered that yet. Okay, after a few more uncomfortable minutes, okay, the boy th- uh, thinks uh, of his father's suggestion and turns to the second item on the list, and he asks, "Do you have a brother?" Again, the girl says, "No." And there is silence once again. Okay. So finally, the boy plays his last card. Okay. He thinks of his father's advice and asks the girl the following question. If you had a brother, would he like potato pancakes? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kind of a, yeah, 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 yeah. That's good. Kind of a, ha- happily married the first two questions, which didn't work, you know. Uh, you know, and, and added this modal situation, uh, possibility and necessity, uh, very interesting, uh, but I'm sure that didn't go over so well either. I can't. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> okay. Uh, and I'll finish with this one. This is, this is a short one, and then we'll, we'll dive into things. Okay, and this is a short one. The dean uh, of the physics department, I'll try to relate this to what I'm going to say here too, uh, had the following thing to say here. He said, why do I always have to give you guys, and he's speaking to the physicists here, so much money for laboratories and expensive equipment and stuff? Why couldn't you be more like the math department? All they need okay, is pencils, paper, and waste paper baskets. I think this is also a little antiquated. Let's assume they brought all the technology, brought it with them, so all the colleges to provide are those items. Okay. Okay. Or even better, like the philosophy part, department. All they need are pencils and paper. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's actually a lot to take from that. I mean, one, one is that, I guess, 
philosophers write are all like garbage. Everything they write is exceptional, and it never needs to be thrown away. You know? It all needs to be saved for posterity. I, I, I don't know if that's, if that's really the case, because I teach philosophy. And not everything I receive really ought to be preserved uh, you know, beyond a few weeks, maybe. Anyhow, but yeah, and even some of what I've produced. Anyway, oh, but, but, but I, I, the idea, too, is that philosophers sometimes have, out, they put out outrageous waste. And, you know, under the, the guise of authentic philosophy. And we get to see some of that waste tonight. But I'd like us to identify with them a little bit, okay? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, where, how did they come to these conclusions, okay? You know, when Leibniz says, everything is monads, okay? And I'm not going to get into Leibniz tonight as much as I'd like. Uh, but all that you see that is matter is really just reducible to immaterial points, called monads that are windowless. And that means that they they can't communicate with one another. There's no causal relationships. And these are the constitutive components of all reality. And they're dynamic. And you start thinking, this guy is absolutely mad. But but he's also the co-creator of calculus with Newton, so he's not an idiot. And And then you finally start to study a little bit more and say, hey, even today, do we have someone saying something similar? That matter is fundamentally reducible to energy. Okay, I mean, and it's and you realize like he didn't miss the boat so bad, you know, and 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 there's ways to kind of save some of these characters. And nonetheless, ideas have consequences. Okay, and so some of their errors have horrible consequences. I would argue in in the history of mankind. Uh, so let's look at how they got there with a certain kind of sympathy for these characters because they're all bright. But again, some of the worst disasters in humankind were perpetrated by p- individuals who were extremely bright. I remember a famous, uh, another joke here. Before I'm, 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 I know I'm cutting into my own time here, but I have to. Uh, I just can't help myself sometimes. Uh, but but I, think, I, think, I think this is William Buckley or someone said this, uh, Junior. He said, you know, I'd rather have our country ruled by the first 2,000 people in the Boston phone book than by the faculty at Harvard University. <laughs> you know, you know, eh, you know I mean, uh, there's, there's something to that. Uh, you know, sometimes the, the worst errors are perpetrated by people who are brilliant. Uh, and philosophers, we can kind of justify and explain this a little bit. You know, and there's characters like St. Clair, St. Therese of Lisieux, who just by their ascent in faith to the church's doctrine come up with a philosophy in the wide sense that is more real and more true than some of the greatest minds. But that's another topic for another day. So I'd like to begin by referring to a few questions that, that, that were addressed towards the end. Uh, what, what, someone brought this up to me personally and privately. Is, you know, they said, you, know, you speak of Catholicism, and this is kind of an accidental comment I made toward the end, talking about truth, the pursuit of truth, and comparing it to a romance. And the analogy in being that we talked about last time as being uh, kind of uh, like a romance in that, okay, when we come to know something is true, okay, there's something familiar. We lay hold of something that we know, and there's a kind of familiarity there. However, it also reveals to us even more of what we don't know, and therefore points beyond itself to the great expanses of reality that we have hitherto not been aware of. And, and, and therefore, it satiates our hunger for adventure and a desire to know more. And therefore, it's like a romance. There's both familiarity but adventure. Okay? And there's something familiar, but like any good romance, if everything's absolutely understood and comprehended, 
would be a boring romance, would it not? And, and therefore, you know, truth and reality, as I, as I constructed it last time on the board, or Thomas did, or actually reality is constructed, and I pointed to it uh, by making diagrams on the board, uh, kind of points to this, to this dichotomy. And therefore, in pursuit of truth, it's much like a romance. And, and, and uh, anyway, so this, so this person asked me, well, if Catholics cornered the market on romance, no, no. It's just that a Catholic worldview is, is, uh, is romantic in the following way, is that it's a sacramental vision of reality. Okay? Matter and things in this world are what we know. But they also point beyond themselves okay, to higher reality. Okay? And so it's not just that we come to see uh, things in their, in their nature on this, or in this world, but they point beyond themselves. Insofar as something is beautiful, it isn't beauty itself. Many things are beautiful, some things more than others. Therefore, encountering something is beautiful, and our judgment of it is beautiful, implies reference to a standard of beauty, that which is beauty itself. Therefore, in the encountering of beautiful things, we're reminded of that which is beautiful. Okay, not the, the, something that just isn't, doesn't receive beauty and, and, and beauty which can be lost, but it points to beauty itself, which is transcendent, timeless, transcend, transcending space and time, and, and ultimately is identified with God himself. Okay? And therefore, in seeing good things and beautiful things, we're led beyond them to higher things. And therefore, the Catholic Church is, is, is in a particular way very much interested in physical gestures. It's very much interested in even statues and, and windows and, and all these other things that, that aren't strictly for themselves, but to point beyond themselves as references to a higher reality. Okay? And that's what I was referring to. Okay? And, and it's something that I think is very Catholic and also very Orthodox for that matter. Uh, uh, and, and this leads to my answer to the second question. I mean, certainly uh, there's an aspect of mystery. And so that's something I'd like to point to now. And this is also by way of review of last lecture. Is you look at Catholic art while I'm talking about beauty. And uh, again, it's something that's beautiful, but it doesn't explain everything. And it points to a kind of mystery that goes beyond, in some sense, what you see. And this you can see even in the history of architecture. Okay? Everything in Catholic art isn't meant to be uh, uh, to, it's perfectly rational and ordered to the extent that it, it, it annihilates mystery. But it's meant to be rational, but also to point beyond reason to mysteries, mysteries of the faith. Okay? Hence, if you look at Chartres Cathedral, okay, there's all these intricacies, okay? And it takes a long time to comprehend it. I mean, even the, the various uh, stat the statuary in there is amazing. And, and, and the intricacy of every spire is meant to inspire you with a love of detail and of mystery. And you could, you could spend your life in there and never see everything, kind of like St. Peter's Basilica itself. Okay, you could spend forever there and you would never comprehend it. Okay? Now compare that even to some of the architecture we have even in our nation's capital here. Okay? It's more the fruit of the Enlightenment. Okay? And fruit of one of the strands 
of, of, of thought that I'm going to discuss, okay, uh, as contrasted with the Catholic vision that includes reason but also points to a higher reason that is by way of our faith and to mysterious realities. We're going to contrast that with a vision of reality that says everything can be comprehended. Everything can be made and everything can be understood. And it's a hyper-rationalization that occurs during this time period. And it's, it's interestingly, and I, I think not coincidentally, uh, rivaled by an opposite strand of thought that says we actually cannot know anything. Okay? And, and these two parallel thoughts are kind of in contrast to the mean position, the middle position that is advocated by uh, kind of a, a Catholic-influenced philosophy. Okay, and so we see even you know something a little bit. And after I lived in Rome for five years, a little bit sterile, a little bit very clear and very rational and ordered and beautiful. But it leaves a little mis. There's, there's no mystery. I mean, when you see a lot of the great monuments here, they're beautiful, but they don't turn you towards a deeper reality or a mystery the way maybe St. Peter's Basilica with all of its intricate side chapels, etc., would do. Okay, just it's food for thought. But again, even the history of ideas plays out in human history and plays out even in terms of what we build. Okay, and then spaces for functionality and not simply for the sake of beauty. Okay, like some of, of the architecture that, that we saw in the Middle Ages. Anyway, I'm not, I'm not passing judgment on that. Some of the art today is very beautiful, uh, but, but it, it leaves. Some of it, it, it there's, there's, I think we could say that there's a, a certain achievement even of Gothic cathedrals that really, in some senses, is not paralleled by anything today and is in itself marvelous, showing us both rationality and mystery. Okay. So this, this kind of prefigures our discussion today, which is going to be uh, kind of tracing these two lines of thought we see through the Enlightenment. Uh, the, the, strain, uh, the train of thought, or the, the, the strand of thinkers that try to rationalize really everything, and, and sometimes uh, disregard faith entirely, and, and think that reason can comprehend everything on its own. And an opposite tra- uh, uh, kind of thought that, it, that, that says that we cannot know anything. And, and, and then the Catholic position, again, is the mean. But I'll get to that momentarily. I'd like just to say, uh, actually, and the other questions I'm not going to deal with, so I think we should just dive in because I don't want to take up all my time here. Uh, but uh, well, I, I'll very quickly address them. So another question we, we heard together ad- addressed the question of deification. And, and I think we were speaking uh, kind of um, kind of like you know, ships passing in the night. We were speaking past each other. And the gentleman who asked the question actually called me, and we, and we very much see things the same way. We just spoke past each other a tiny bit. But, but he said, yeah, I think his point was, well, what about the fact that, uh, you know, we're in the hierarchy of being, as, as I painted last time. Uh, you know, we found you know, angels in some ways in a privileged place above man. But, but then what about, about the angels bowing down to Mary and stuff? You know? And, and what, how, do we rat, how do we put that into uh, the diagram I made? And, and, and the answer is, I'm analyzing things here philosophically. That is, using philosophy or reason to uncover what we can know about reality apart from the assistance of faith. But the whole beauty of, a, of the faith is the story of what God did to elevate or perfect our nature in some sense. I mean, God became man. 
Okay, and because he did that and, and was incarnate uh, in, in, in the, in the uh, womb of a virgin, that changes human nature in a certain sense. And we still remain men, but we have a new dignity. Okay, and, and that is something that is revealed to us, not something necessarily that can be known naturally, and that changes things somewhat. And I'm certainly open to that, and I think that's something I actually emphasized in the talk, you know, is that, the, 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 again, what we know by faith takes us beyond. It adds, without destroying as grace builds on nature, so too does divine knowledge build on uh, what we can know about nature, reality, ourselves, philosophically. Okay. Now, let's set the stage for this, 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 this discussion of the Enlightenment. Okay. We're going to have two strands of thinkers. Those who believe, again, they have a, a, in some ways they suffer from an overconfidence in the capacities of reason. And those who have the, uh, an opposite air and problem is that they lack confidence. And we're going to try to see where, why it is the case, or where, wh- how do they come to those positions. And I also associated, and I wish I could draw this on the board, we have all these names that I don't want to erase right now, uh, but, but we also discussed last time, okay, that a certain analogy in being was essential as a background to understand how the Catholic Church has this very harmonious relationship between faith and reason. And so what I did, and I'll try to, to, to kind of recreate this very quickly, is uh, we, we paint, painted a picture of the hierarchy of being. Uh, and we showed how God is in some ways up here, the fountain of all that is. Okay. And different beings in, in a descending hierarchy, angels, men, animals, plants, inanimate objects, rocks, uh, uh, receive their being from God. Okay. And yet in receiving their being, it's a reception of a kind of nature, if you will. Okay. A kind of nature that shares in the nature of God. It's not the fullness of being like God, but it's angelic being. In other words, a kind of nature that is received from God. But it's missing something. It's missing everything that's not angelic. Just like man is missing something. He's missing something, uh, a kind of privation, if you will, of everything that is, that, is not, uh, that is not of a human nature. And therefore, his nature is not identified with being itself the way God is being, all these other beings have received a portion of being. Okay? But all of them have their origin and all their perfections in God who is. And therefore, the more they resemble God, we have an ascending hierarchy. The more and, and the greater perfections they have that, sh- that help them share God's perfect life, God's perfect knowledge, we have a certain kind of hierarchy. Okay? And we see animals and plants have life, but man's life is superior, angels' life is superior, etc. Man's knowledge is one thing. Even animals have knowledge of individual things, but man's knowledge transcends that of animals, and angelic knowledge transcends that of man. Okay? But all of them have received these perfections from God. Now, this is kind of an analogy in being. There's something similar and something different uh, between all of these created things and God himself. Now, there's other visions of being or reality. Being is what is. Uh, besides the analog- uh, kind of this, this anal- uh, analogous concept of being, we have a, a concept of, a, of a, uh, kind of a u- being as univocal, which is there's no difference or distinction, no hierarchy. God, man, animals, plants, 
what is, is, and is one and the same. Okay, and you say, how is that possible? It's a kind of pantheism. Basically, everything is what it is. And I made mention of these are the individuals often, and Hegel was a kind of pantheist, uh, uh, sort of. Okay, it was very similar in, in many respects to a pantheist. He would say that man, if being is identified with man, then man through his rational capacities can unlock all the mysteries of being. Okay? With, with man in his natural capacities here, he can understand himself, he can understand anything else that's presented to him as a created thing in nature, but God isn't in nature, so we have to know God through his creation, at least philosophically. But if God is one with nature, and man can understand what is natural, then God could be totally comprehended, and that is exactly the, the position of Hegel. And then we have other individuals who talked, uh, we talked about another vision of reality as being as equivocal. Everything is totally different. And I, I, I kind of painted this picture by saying God, man are entirely separate one from another. The other vision is God and man kind of overlap. This is, by way of analogy, this is a, a univocal concept of being, and this is equivocal. Okay? God and man overlap. God and man are radically different. In fact, everything is different. And therefore, in coming to know man, we learn nothing about God. Whereas by analogy, if we come to know our perfection, we come to see that this perfection, that we are good or beautiful, demands that beauty exists, that God exists in a perfect way. And they point to the perfect existence of these perfections in a perfect being. Okay, and so even so we're different from God, but things that are different are also like God, and therefore what is like can reveal something of his nature. Okay. Now, how did we get to these different contrasting visions of reality? An analogous concept of being, being is univocal or the same, being is equivocal. Everything is totally different. And again, you hear analogy is the middle ground, okay, between everything is same, everything is different. Uh, things are, analogy says things are the same and different. Okay, so how did we get there? Well, I think we get there by the different conclusions these different philosophers have regarding truth. Okay, that's left. Good. Okay, so the different visions they have regarding truth. Okay, so now I'm going to go into a basic overview of a kind of the understanding of truth according to St. Thomas and contrast it with a concept of truth from various thinkers. Okay? And we'll see how these two different visions of reality, these three different visions, evolved. Okay? Because they all take different attitudes to the possibility of man to know his world. Okay, so what we're going to do and discuss right now is, and this will, will, will allow us to trace these, these thinkers through, time, through history, is look at their different attitudes towards what man can know about reality. Okay. Now, I'll start with Thomas, because it gives us a place maybe we're a little bit more familiar, and then I'll get into some contrasting positions. Now, those of you who attended a lecture series I gave with, with Professor McGuire uh, back in McLean last spring, some of this will be reviewed, but then I'm going to take you beyond what you did last time. Now, for Thomas, <clears throat> truth is founded in reality. Okay, and I think that's the, the most fundamental thing okay, for us to point out, is the way we get even language okay, is based on our ideas, which are based on things. Okay? So for St. Thomas, okay, 
we have uh, maybe some kind of a uh, thing. I'm just going to write T for thing. And in our experience of things, we get I for ideas. Okay, and then our words, okay, are derived from the various concepts or ideas we have in our mind. Okay, so so knowledge begins in things. Okay, and Thomas will affirm, along with Aristotle, that there is nothing in the mind that wasn't first in the senses. Okay, now. Uh, he'll say, I'll repeat that, there's nothing in the mind that wasn't first in the senses. So everything we know, in some sense, naturally that is, not by way of revelation, okay, everything we've experienced or is derived from some experience. Okay, okay so that's, that's where he grounds our knowledge. Okay? Now, however, in our experience, okay, we experience particular things. Okay? But how can we explain okay, our knowledge of something called universals? Okay, now, we, we, what, what is a universal? It's like a common noun. Okay, we have things like tree, car, man. You've never seen tree. You've never seen car. You've never seen man. You've seen cars, you've seen men, and you've seen trees. But, but when we say a tree, or an elm tree, or an oak tree, we're speaking about common things that refer to multiple individuals. Okay, an oak tree, in theory, could point to, or just the concept of oak tree, to every oak tree that exists. Okay, anything that's an oak tree falls under uh, what it means to be an oak tree. Okay, and how do we come to that knowledge? It's a good question. I mean, if you never thought about that, I mean, just think about it for a second. How do we have ideas of general things? Justice. Have you ever seen justice walk around? You know, have you ever seen peace? How do we get these universal ideas? Okay, well, what Thomas says, even the concept one, okay, the concept green, okay, we have green tablecloths, but how do we come to knowledge of green? Well, Thomas will say it's through green things. Okay, but the mind has the capacity, and this is the human mind, which takes it beyond animals, has a unique capacity to do what? To abstract. Okay, and so the theory of knowledge of St. Thomas is the theory of abstraction. And what does that mean? The theory of knowledge that Thomas advocates, uh, and in this respect he's similar to Aristotle, he's also similar to Plato in other ways, but in this way he's similar to Aristotle. What is abstraction? Well, what, is, what does it mean to abstract? Well, what does the word sound like to you, anyone? Take out. To take out. Very good. So you're taking out something. Okay, it's perfect. Thank you. So, so we have a green tablecloth. Now, it has a certain length, has a certain width, certain dimensions, a certain amount of ripples on its surface, and it's green. What abstraction is doing is taking from the particular a certain something from it, okay? a certain thing that is made universal in the mind. It is taking from the green tablecloth, you're abstracting, you're leaving behind everything else about it and focusing on it as green. And Thomas will say, this is the way we come to knowledge of things. Okay, we've never seen circle, but we have seen circular things. Okay, the tires on your car in the parking lot. And from the tire, I'm able to abstract the notion, not, forget the rubber, forget the Michelin uh, and all, all the other words on it, 
But let's focus just on it as a circle. And now I can predicate, which is speak of, a circle in regard to hula hoops, in, in, in regard to uh, uh, Cheerios. Okay? But how did I get that notion? From things that are circular. And I abstract from what is individual about them and focus on a certain aspect in abstraction. I focus on that aspect. And in this way, by way of our sense experience, uh, Thomas would argue, we come to knowledge of universals. Okay. Now, this has profound ramifications. So let's get into the consequences. Remember, ideas have consequences. Okay. What are the consequences of this? Well, Thomas says we can come to know human nature this way. I could come to know what a man is, and I could come to know what a man is and how a man should act. Okay? A man is made for certain ends, and therefore any man ought to be able to perform these ends. And if he's acting in a way that is not consistent with his nature, then he is, in some ways, sinning, okay? or, or acting in an immoral way, in a way that's disordered in respect to his nature. Okay. Now, that seems pretty straightforward, but it's certainly not the only vision, uh, not even only the acceptable vision, but it's in a vision of how we come to universal knowledge. Now, let me show you what happens when people deny this possibility. Now, William of Ockham, okay, so Thomas lived between 1225 and 1274. William of Ockham was 1288 to 1348. Uh, he's now past the height of scholasticism. And scholasticism is thought that is influenced uh, by Aristotle. Okay, before the scholastic world, just you've always heard scholasticism. What does that mean? Okay, well, really, scholasticism comes about finally from all of Aristotle's work being translated into Latin. Okay, for a while it existed, of course, in the Greek, and then in Syriac and Aramaic. It existed in the Islamic world in in the Middle Ages, even the early Middle Ages, and finally, a very circuitous way, ended up in the West. Okay, finally was translated between. Uh, the uh, you know, 1150 and 1250, it was finally, a lot, all of Aristotle was translated. And therefore, it influences the theologians. And everyone who is influenced by Aristotle and his, his work that's now been translated is called a scholastic. The high scholastics okay, would be Thomas, Bonaventure, even Duns Scotus. And then there's a certain decline that sets in, and, and Martin Luther is at the beginning of this decline, I would argue. Okay? And he's, and, uh, I mean, uh, Martin Luther is actually influenced by Occam, but Occam was at the beginning of the decline, even as, as, uh, in, in the middle of the 14th century. Okay. Now, what did he say? He denied man's possibility to abstract. He denied it. All we see are singulars. <clears throat> All I see are individuals. And, and, and basically, he said, our knowledge cannot elevate beyond that. Okay? I see singulars. I see a man. I see you. I see Dorothy. I see Tim. I see John that is like someone else, but it doesn't mean they share in some mystical nature. They're all different. They're all different. And basically, reality and being is equivocal. It's, yeah, you just can't know from one person uh, the way the other person should act. There's no common nature that binds us. Yes, we're similar, but there's no common mysterious nature that you can't touch, see, smell, and taste. But all knowledge is reduced, therefore, to sense knowledge. And all the senses can know is individuals, individual things. Ah, but what are the ramifications of this? Well, 
Timmy, Joan, Luke do not share the same nature. They each are their own thing. They're similar, but we can't have demands placed on them based on a common nature. Well, this leads to some issues. So where do we get, how do do we order reality? Well, he believes in, in a certain concept called theological voluntourism. And basically, okay, what is law is what God says. Okay? Whatever God says goes. Okay? Whatever it is. Even if he says for one person to commit adultery and for another person not to. At least in theory, it's fine. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. It's not as if we have some nature that that act is inconsistent with. And therefore, he says, you know, it might be good to curse God's name for one person and not for another. If God wanted that to be the case, for it to be morally good for one and not for another, God can do whatever he wants, can't he? A radical notion of God's freedom. God, but, but is God free to violate the rational order? I would say no. Okay. Okay. So, so anyway, you see, and so what are the effects of this? You see these. So, so basically all we can know are individuals. We don't have a common nature. Only what God says we ought to follow. Okay. So what happens when people stop believing in what God says? Where do, where, where do we turn for a kind of moral barometer? There isn't anything. Okay. Now, a person who advocates this kind of nominalism, okay, and this is the name for his, his system, a nominalist believes we can't come to universal knowledge, that abstraction and other means of coming to universal knowledge are not possible. What it leads to is individuals like Thomas Hobbes. Okay? Hobbes is also, like most of English thinkers from the time of William Ockham on, a nominalist. And so what does he have to say? about forming or constructing a social order. Okay, what is a state of nature like for Hobbes? I'm sure everyone knows this. There you go. I mean, and why? Because nasty, brutish, and short, okay, and these like things. I mean, we've all kind of had this. Well, why does he say that? Why does he say that? Well, because without any natural order, okay, what is morality? It's not what I ought to do, but it's what I want the only morality for everyone is what he wants. And so we all have our own desires, but there's a problem here. What is the problem? When I want something that you want, what are we going to do? Who decides? And, and the problem is I want to preserve my life. And so if you want to take my stuff and I want to fight you for it, that's a dangerous proposition. Because even more than my stuff, I want to survive. Okay, so what do you do? What do we do? Ah, let's enter into an agreement. Give over all of our rights to everything, our desires for everything. Hand over those rights to a sovereign. And the sovereign then will have the complete jurisdiction to order society in in such a way that it functions. And therefore, what is right or wrong is not to be right or wrong based on our nature, but based on the will of the sovereign. Okay? Therefore, we have a split between civil law and natural law. 
Civil law is what, is what the sovereign, people in authority, and he, could, he said it could even be a body. It didn't have to be a, a totalitarian one individual, but it could be a body. What is right is to follow what they posit. And anything that they posit, in, the only hope for, for order is to follow what they do, so it's, it's moral. Okay? Now, so you, see, so you see where these ideas lead, okay? and, and that's just one example. Okay, and therefore, okay, uh, you see with, with Thomas Hobbes, okay, the conclusions he arrives at if there is nothing that binds us. And again, if everything's equivocal, everything is different, even people are different. There's nothing that holds them together, a common nature, for instance. And certainly, it cannot be known. And if it can't, we have this, this split between the civil and the natural law. Because for the Catholic, is civil law legitimate? Yes. Is natural law, does it exist? The law of our nature. Is there a hierarchy? Which comes before the other. And therefore, is there a theory of civil disobedience for a Catholic? Yes. If the, if the civil law is, is, is not in accord with our nature... We do not have an obligation to follow it. Okay? And then divine law goes beyond that, and the eternal law is the law of God in its nature. Anyhow, you see the ramifications from a simple theory of knowledge. Okay. Now that's taking it one direction. Let's take it the other direction, shall we? And look at the individuals who, ha- who have developed an overconfidence in reason. Okay? And you can see the innumerable consequences. So let me add just finally, again, these are people who lack the ability, they think they lack the confidence of man to come to universal knowledge. Now, if you can see, it even undermines science. Because science deals with laws. Laws about electrons that apply to all of them. Not just every, one individual electron with its own law, but everything. Okay? And if you want to speak about how oak trees are, you know, and have it apply to all oak trees, you need a theory of universals. So it leads you to a radical skepticism, okay, this, this kind of thinking. Okay. And, and, and a great rift in John Locke, David Hume, all of these people are advocates. Locke, Hume, uh, uh, Locke's English, Hume's Scottish. Uh, now, these thinkers are advocates of this kind of skepticism. Okay. Uh, now, there are nuances here. David Hume is the most skeptic. Okay, uh, but, but there's, there's significant consequences. Okay? And therefore, you find what is education is not forming bonds between various bits of facts, but all knowledge and learning is is accumulation of facts, accumulation of data, empirical data. And so you have the, encyclop- uh, the encyclopedia tradition by Voltaire and others. That, that's what they do. We're not trying to unite all of our knowledge, you know, theology, then metaphysics, philosophy of nature, unite all of them together. Okay, uh, you, you have just data, facts, what's happened. You know, uh, and, and there's a, the, the encyclopedia tradition evolves out of this. Another fruit of the Enlightenment and a kind of skepticism and a lack of confidence of man to come to know. Therefore, we have an equivocal notion of being and profound skepticism. Now, the overconfidence of man's ability to know, the other stra- uh, train of thought. Now, where does it come from? Ironically, the same source. Okay? Now we have, and I wish I had more time to go into more of this history here, but in late Middle Ages, there's warring feuds among scholastics. <clears throat> and with all the debate, people were looking for another route. People were tired of all these warring scholastics and Aristotelianism in general, 
and people were starting to doubt the senses, okay? And that the senses could be the foundation of our higher knowledge, okay? Uh, and, and we saw some of them there, and Descartes sees this. But he wants still to find certitude. So what does Descartes do? Okay. In order to overcome the skeptics Montaigne, Michel de Montaigne, and others of his time, what does he do? Does anyone remember? He tries to become more skeptical than the skeptics. Okay? And he figures if he outdoes them in their skepticism and finds something that the most pernicious and outlandish skeptic could not deny, then from that point, he would build a system that, like an axiom of geometry, would flow deductively in a perfect fashion from some one indubitable principle. So he looks around, okay? And he says, okay, maybe I'm, se I'm seated here, uh, you know, and maybe uh, by my fire. Okay, he was on military service in 1619, and he's having this, he had this thought. But you know what? I've been dreaming sometimes. And in my dreams, I was also seated in this spot by my fire. So I really cannot discern properly by way of my senses if I am dreaming or not. Now he tries, now there's ways out of this. Okay? When you're, you rarely feel the pain of heat in a dream. Okay? Uh, there's a certain primary contact the, the, you know, you see, see Descartes, are you going to doubt this? You put your hand in fire, you're, you're not going to doubt that you, you're, you're dreaming, okay? Uh, you're, going to, you're going to feel very confident you're awake. But anyhow, he feels that because he can't distinguish between waking and dream states, that we can call into question all of our knowledge received by way of sense knowledge. Ah, but there's, so he's now sorting through all the knowledge he has, trying to find that which is indubitably certain. And all knowledge attained by way of sensation, by way of that maybe disputable, certainly disputable uh, experience he had, uh, and in conclusion, we, we could talk about more if we had time, he throws out. However, even in my dreams, he says, two plus two is four. Mathematical truths are true even in my dreams. Now, some people are like, no, I've had a dream where they're not. Anyway, okay, let's just assume, let, let's, go, let's go with them here. But he says, that, now what if, however, what if, and he takes his doubt to the most extreme level possible. What if there was an evil genius? Okay, just, just no less evil than intelligent. To fool me about even those truths. I mean, what if? And he's left in despair. I can't find anything. Ah, oh, but then he finds it. In his despair, his very doubting of everything, he latches onto something that is absolutely certain. He says, well, wait a minute. No matter what thoughts I have, maybe they're all wrong. They're all crazy. Okay? At least I, I know that I'm doubting. And, you know, and the very fact that I'm doubting, the very fact that I can doubt or believe for that matter, what, what I'm thinking proves that I exist. Okay, uh, so, 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 and, and actually, St. Augustine even said something very similar. See, follow, ergo sum. I doubt, therefore I exist. I, I, if someone's doubting, there has to be someone doing the doubting. That's what he's saying. I mean, like, I'm doubting everything. Well, that presupposes something exists to do the doubting. Okay, so there we have it. 
his one indubitable foundation. And like a tree, he's going to try to build everything on the roots of this metaphysical certitude. Uh, now, I'm going to go quick. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, I'm running out of time. So I'm going I'm to take us through this rather quickly here. Okay? Now, uh, what does he do to prove God's existence? Because all he has to work with are his thoughts. Okay? All I know is that I have thoughts. I still don't know if any of them are true. Okay? But, but somehow I have to argue. I know I exist, but does anything else exist? Okay? And this is called solipsism. You're in a bubble and you don't know if anything else exists. Uh, and I have a joke to tell about this, which maybe I'll hold off because I've got to keep cruising. Okay, okay, it, it was a funny joke. I saved it for later. Okay, now, okay, uh, so, so, so here we are. We're doubting everything. So what does he do? I just have my ideas, and some of them, maybe they're all false. Okay, but, I, but let's search my ideas and see if there's some idea that is so unique that it has to exist even outside of my idea of it. Sounds impossible. What idea is this? The idea of God. Okay, so what, what is the idea? Amid all my ideas, there's one idea that stands out. And it's the idea of the greatest conceivable being. The greatest conceivable being. I have an idea of this somehow. I, I don't know if he exists necessarily, but I have the idea. Ah, but I know myself to be something that is imperfect and finite. So how, as a finite person, can I have the idea of something that's perfect? I can't be the origin of that because the lesser cannot give rise to the greater. Therefore, this idea, this idea of a perfect being had to come from where? From the perfect being himself who placed that idea in my consciousness. Now, this is, this is an argument, an ontological argument of the existence of God that was said before in St. Anselm, okay? Uh, and it's a reworking of that. Therefore, I exist, and God exists, and therefore, God, the God that I know, is a good God, and he wouldn't allow me to doubt all those other things that I've, I thought to be true, if I really worked them out thoroughly. And therefore, with the existence of me, on my existence, we found, and God's existence, we found metaphysics, okay, be, things that are beyond physics, we found... Uh, physics and even moral philosophy and everything else can, can then follow. All we have to do is in Euclidean fashion just start deducing from these ideas the whole of reality. And it, and it develops a very ambitious project to explain everything based on these indubitable principles. Okay. Now, from Descartes, <clears throat> now I have to, these are generalizations, I don't have a lot of time, so you have to just you know, bear with me here. So what do we have here? We have man becoming, be careful here, is reality the foundation of our ideas? No, in some ways reality is based on my ideas. And so man, truth is not conforming to the mind, but in some ways what is true uh, is, I mean, I mean it is, uh, the, the mind isn't conforming to things, but things are conforming to the mind. Okay, And that is exactly what Immanuel Kant says in a very elaborate and, and, and beautiful fashion. He said, okay, maybe we've made the mistake all the way through history in saying what is in my mind, our ideas conform to things, that things are the origin of my ideas. Now, he thinks he has, he's skeptical, and so our knowledge can't come from things. It instead must come from the mind. And so our knowledge of space and time, 
Those are categories of the mind itself. You know, the mind is in a blank slate. The mind is hardwired to experience reality and to form it. And therefore, knowledge is the relationship between sense stimuli and the categories of sensibility and understanding that I impose on reality. And therefore, reality conforms to me, not me to reality. Okay? Now, it's a short step there to Hegel. Okay? Hegel, now we've all we've kind of traced through the Enlightenment. Hegel says, well, forget this unknowable. And so that's what he said. Now, can you know reality itself? You can never know reality itself, Kant, because it always comes under the influence of the mind. So you can never get at things in themselves, in their nakedness, apart from what I clothe these impressions with. And therefore, Hegel said, well, maybe, maybe forget these unknowable things in themselves. How could you even say they exist then? Because existence is even a category of the mind. How can you even say they exist? And therefore, all that exists is reduced to what is known. Okay? And reality is the construction of mind itself. And actually, he concludes, and I, I can't get into all of this right now, all reality is mind unfolding through history. And you see historical stages you see the mind itself, actually the divine mind, becoming self-conscious. And as you grow in knowledge, as mankind grows in knowledge, basically in a dialectical manner, and finally with Hegelian thought himself, God, who is mind, who is history, has become, in some sense, self-conscious. And the great excitement of that revelation echoes through Germany. You know, and, and his students, that basically your teacher and what he is saying is the fulfillment of human history and God providentially unfolding himself over time. Now God, the transcendental horizon, has been reduced and he is the same as nature. And we have a univocal concept of reality because reality is mental and mind is not conforming to things. Now there's much more I have to say about that. But then there's a reaction to that, and I'm going to finish with this and with one uh, kind of statement in summary. I'm trying to go through 300 years of intellectual history in like a half hour. It's not easy, okay? I'm trying. I'm trying for you, okay? Now, now so, so, so what does this do? Some students are like, yay! And some students are like, that's ridiculous, you know? You are the fulfillment of human history? That's absurd. I mean, everything is rational. I mean, he tried to rationalize everything. In dialectical fashion, okay, he would say, uh, you know, from the knowledge of, uh, anyway, I, I don't want to get into all this. It's very interesting, but, but I don't have time. But everything is explainable. And they said, no, there's mystery. Everything isn't rational. And so what do they do? They kick down the glass house, and they make room for will. And this is Nietzsche. He throws reason out entirely and makes room for man's passions, man's urges. These are what are more primary about man than this artificial, stale reason that, that is all construction from, from uh, some, some dream of some maniac. You know, Let's get back to things that matter, what I desire. That matters. And so we have now okay, these two divergent streams. Okay, we have the hope of reason 
collapses. And so we're really left with skepticism. And if we're left with skepticism, we're left with those conflicting wills of Hobbes. And we're left with war. We're left with destruction. We're left with battling wills with no means of deciding between them. No morality that can be known. And that was what Nietzsche foreshadowed. That's what he predicted would happen in the 20th century. And that is exactly what happened. Okay? The consequences of our ideas. Okay? So, in conclusion, okay? ideas matter. Ideas have consequences. Okay? Coming up with a vision of reality that both affirms man's ability to know reality, but not to comprehend it perfectly is something that is fundamental to keep man's sanity. And I recommend the book of G.K. Chesterton, Orthodoxy. It's very palatable. It's more than this, even. It's just very readable. And he says that. The, the, the Hegel guy who tries to rationalize everything drives you crazy. A lot of uh, philosophers did go crazy. Nietzsche went crazy. A bunch of them went crazy. Anyway, uh, yeah, and, and it's not surprising in some sense, okay? Okay, uh, they went crazy, okay? But, but it's because they tried to rationalize everything, and you just can't do that. However, you can't go to the opposite extreme and, and, and think that nothing's rational, because then you're lost. So you have to find a medium. And the medium is reason and mystery. Reason that we can know, and the mystery provided by our faith that helps us transcend our knowledge and therefore stick, instead of sticking the heavens in our heads, which leads to our heads cracking, we stick our heads into the heavens and look about in wonder. Okay, that's all. All right, but uh, when we do finally get to the Q&A, our usual rules apply, and that is we'll go uh, maximum of five minutes. Maybe we'll allow ten. But uh, maximum of five questions, and make sure your question is one sentence and has a question mark on the end. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> uh, the, the first joke is very short, and it was inspired by a gentleman I just talked to. Uh, who's an engineer, very noble profession in, in the practical sciences. Uh, philosophy might be considered a speculative art. Uh, engineering is a practical art, you know, dependent on the speculative, but nonetheless, anyhow. Uh, and so, so, so this, is, this is the joke. Uh, what's the difference between a philosopher and an engineer? Anyone? About, about 50,000 a year. You know, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes more, yeah, usually not less, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. <clears throat> now, how, how's this for Descartes? Now, there's shorter versions of this one, but I like this, okay? René, René Descartes, walks into a restaurant and sits down for dinner. The waiter comes over and asks if he'd like an appetizer. No, thank you, says Descartes. I'd just like to order dinner. Would you like to hear our daily specials, asks the waiter. No, says Descartes, getting impatient. Would you like a drink before dinner, the waiter asks. Descartes is insulted since he's a teetotaler. Okay, teetotaler. I think not, he says indignantly, and poof, he disappeared. Okay, okay, well, I, I'm ready for questions now. First over here, and then we're going to go over there. Okay, go ahead. 
Good question. All right, all right. So, so <clears throat> even in, in, in the yeah, okay. The question, the question is, where does America and the ideas that you know are, are foundational to our country? Where does it fit here? Okay, where where does it fit? Well, it's been influenced by both of these schools. I mean, as as you know, a former colony, we're influenced by the British way of thinking, and that is ultimately a kind of skeptical thinking. And it's influenced by Hobbes, it's influenced by Locke and the foundation of the Constitution. But it's also highly influenced by this other strand. I mean, I, I referred even to our architecture. There, there's, there is a confidence in America, of course, that everything, in some ways, by way of rational means, can be worked out. Okay? And, and so we have that thought, you know, the, the, that line of thinking, along with a lack of confidence about man's ability to come to know universal truths. And certainly, we lack this vision I think of analogy of how what is fits into an overarching picture and how what is has received its being from that which is by nature. Okay, what, what is in a finite way is rooted in a being that is existence. God's essence is existence. And, and so we don't have that, that horizon. The ability to kind of see what is as founded in something greater and therefore, we, li- we miss some of the element of mystery. And we're left with a cold rationalization on one side or a rampant skepticism on the other, which leads to kind of moral relativism, or a hyper-rationalization, which tries to work out things, but things are often worked out without a contextualization within a whole, whole and total framework of reality. I mean, that's, that's what I would say to that. Um, your question, please. Uh, how did nominalism, how did that affect the mm-hmm. thought of Martin Luther? Okay, good question. Enormously, okay. So, 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 so uh, the thought of Martin Luther was 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 uh, profoundly influenced. In fact, Gregory Beale was was his uh, educator, and on Gregory Beale's deathbed, okay, no, no, on Martin Luther's bed. So Gregory Beale was an enormous nominalist. Okay, the, the battling schools at the time of Martin Luther, there's many, but the three foundational ones were Occam, uh, no, no, were, were nominalists, which were basically Occamists. Thomas, uh, uh, now most of a Dominican variety, and uh, Scotus. And Gregory Beale, his, his instructor, was a devout nominalist. And Martin Luther died quoting Gregory Beale from memory. I mean, that permeated his education. And, and, and it's, you, know, you can say what you want, but generally speaking, you know, and I, I just read a book recently on Martin Luther. And, and in general, his attitude towards what reason can know about God is that in general, it's incapable and God is unreachable. I mean, is some of the, foundation, the conclusions of a Lutheran scholar, a guy who's Lutheran at the University of Hamburg, concluded. And, and so that makes sense, given a certain kind of nominalism. Okay? So that is his philosophical ancestry. Now, he diverges from nominalism in significant ways as well. Okay? But that is his basic formation. Uh, he wasn't very well versed in the thought of St. Thomas at all. At all. So that's, that's the that's serious. I hope that's Go ahead. Based on the timeline of all these people here, yeah. at least dating back to uh, 1200s, have there been any great Islamic philosophers? I don't see. No, no, see, that's, that's a really good point. Okay, thanks for bringing that up. The great Islamic philosophers are before 1225. The last of them died in 1198, uh, and his name was Averroes. I don't know, if you, if you read the Summa, I mean, this is phenomenal. This is how open-minded Thomas was to the truth. 
If you read the Summa, you'll see him sometimes refer to just the philosopher, generically. That's Aristotle. He also refers to one other individual, a couple others, generically. One is called the commentator. And that was Averroes, who commented so much and often accurately on Aristotle that he was a profound influence on Thomas. Now, Thomas diverges, yes, controversies with followers of Averroes. And ultimately, Thomas thinks in some key areas, Averroes misunderstood Aristotle, and, and that led to profound problems. Because at the University of Paris, when Thomas was teaching, there is the Faculty of Arts, which is uh, basically philosophy and other uh, arts. And it was influenced by Averroes often. And then there's the theology faculty that have people that were um, <clears throat> Dominicans and Franciscans, Franciscans who were Augustinian, and Dominicans who were Aristotelian, but not in an absolute way, a slavish way that Averroes was. Averroes actually thought Aristotle was kind of like the incarnation of the divine mind. And, and everything Aristotle says is is quasi-gospel truth. But in the process, he did do, he wrote wonderful commentaries on Aristotle. And so he was the last great Islamic philosopher, and he died uh, right as Thomas's teacher, Albert the Great, in the year 1200, was being born. Yeah. And, then, and then before him, there's Avicenna, Ibn Sina, Ibn Rushd is the Islamic version, uh, Arabic version of, of, of Aristotle. And there's some great philosophers. And they passed on Aristotle to the West, but often in an uh, adulterated sense, for better and for worse. Any other questions? Okay, please. And I don't mean this rudely at all. Oh, yeah. If Jesus Christ were here, where would he put himself? Yeah. Looking, looking at these, we actually studied these. Yeah, yeah. See, yeah, yeah, so, 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 I mean, so who, who is Jesus? You know, so Jesus is the word, so he is truth. And so he's going to side with the ones who are right. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, 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 that's, yeah, <clears throat> no, that's, that's the joke version, yeah. But, 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 uh, yeah, so, so he is truth, okay, so, so, so that, so he doesn't have to have partial truths. But, but I think, I think the vision that is, I mean, Christ is the fullness of truth, and so he goes beyond philosophy. But I think what vision is most accommodating to is a vision that acknowledges truth. I mean, God has made man, okay, in his image, and we have a certain natural capacity to know. And, and therefore, uh, you know, a system that denies man's capacity to know is a problem. However, we're not God. And therefore, a system that acknowledges that we can unfold and understand everything about God, like Hegel, is denies the person God made us to be, which is a person that is incapable, especially in this life, of comprehending all things. Therefore, I think the vision, you know, audaciously here, that Christ would be more amenable to there, is the one that would admit a man's possibility to know truth, whereas simultaneously acknowledging its limits, and the limits of man's mind, and his need for Christ, and, and, and the revelation that he gives man, that God gives us to us gratuitously, to take us beyond what we can do naturally. Yeah. When Jesus came along, th this is what baffles yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. He came along, all these people are after Jesus, and he came along mm -hmm. and he said, Philip, if you have seen me, yeah, you yeah. have seen the Father. Right. I mean, I don't understand why yeah. Jesus' words haven't been 
sucked up by just about every school of intellectual thought and applied. And the reason Man. I bring it up, no, I have a good apologetics no. wise, I cannot answer my friends who are atheists, mm -hmm. raging liberals, when they say, oh yeah, Jesus Christ, he was, they don't call him Christ, Jesus mm -hmm. was the best communicator of all time. Mm -hmm. they, 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 they lavish me with these um, mm -hmm. platitudes. Oh Man. yeah, you're, you know, you're a Christian, but mm -hmm. it, yeah. how do I... So, 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 uh, yeah. If he were the greatest uh -huh. communicator, why don't you believe that he is, you know, the incarnate yeah. word? Yeah, this, and I think there's a lot in, in your statements and question there. And, 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 and I would say a few things, okay? Let me just say one thing here. For all of you who don't comprehend all this, and I don't comprehend all this, it's not, 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 not to worry. Why? Because Thomas himself said, you know, those people who would know God's existence from natural reason, I, I didn't give any of the demonstrations, are few. And it takes a long time. And with an admixture of air. But we need to know God, who's our end, in order to act rightly so we can get to him. Therefore, there's a kind of moral obligation to God to reveal himself. And God did reveal himself. And therefore, what's ex exciting is the, someone pronouncing, or just someone uh, speaking the creed with faith has knowledge that supersedes everyone here. Okay? Now, what do they have? I mean, and, and so then, so, so therefore, you know, both, and that's why she, like St. Therese of Lisieux is wise. And she fools the, 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 the wise of this world. However, is there something different than St. Thomas and Therese of Lisieux? What's the difference? In some ways, Thomas has something more intellectually, and he can offer more of a substantial defense of what we know by faith. And he can articulate it and make quick deductions in ways that she might not, might not be able but fortunately, that knowledge isn't necessary for salvation. And everyone just believing with the faith of a child, which is very, you know, the reading today was talking about that at Mass. St. Uh, Claire is, is very much of that, of that mentality. Fools the, the wise of this world. However, there's nothing wrong with being both wise and smart. Now, you don't have to be wise and smart for salvation. You know, you just have to be wise. And to be wise, you have to believe. You know, and, and in doing so, you can foil all those who are just smart. But at the same time, we have doctors of the church. So what are they? They have the wisdom of St. Therese, and they have something else to, to kind of be able to articulate the faith and, and natural reason and, and the principles that undergird the faith. Anyway, that's, that's something that might be of help. Okay, okay, I'll talk, I'll talk next time. I'll talk with persons individually who want to talk, okay? Anyway, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. All right, I do um, I just real quickly want to follow up on that last and last point, and that is to say that if, if we find ourselves and we're not able to give a reasoned answer for our faith to those who are before us, it's time that we throw out our televisions, cancel our subscriptions to the Washington Post, open our Bibles, and bring people to the Institute of Catholic Culture. So I expect that the room will be full next week when you all invite your friends. God bless you. We'll see you next week for Brendan McGuire.